Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. I am outside the house of David Lloyd, famous for winning Wimbledon, uh, the Junior Wimbledon Championships, uh, and also for David Lloyd Gyms Health Clubs. So I think you'll see that we had a lot of fun together. We talked about his business journey. David Lloyd Clubs sold for $925 million. Pounds. So I don't want to give you a long intro. One thing I will say though is we tested something a bit different and we added in a little bit of a cheeky round for quite cheeky questions, which I think David enjoyed to answer. So come inside with me for the Disruptive Entrepreneur interview with David Lloyd. Uh, David, you uh, were junior Wimbledon singles champion, weren't you? I was many years ago. Yeah. Uh, was it 65? It was. Yeah. And um, did you think when you won Junior Wimbledon, that was your career and your life, kind of? I was very lucky. My dad, who died a couple of years ago, 94, he's a good, really lovely man. Uh, at, that, at that age, all those years ago, you know, you weren't supposed to play sport for a living because we were amateurs. Right, yeah. You know, there's no money in tennis. I mean, you, you know, my first Davis Cup match, I got a silver spoon. But <laughs> he... He saw something in me and, and, you know, pushed me to play. So yeah. he gave me the chance and uh, he used to sell dresses. So I used to go around the world selling his dresses to pay for my trips. Right. And so he backed me 100%. Tennis was the only sport spoken about in our house. I mean, John, who was my younger brother, it was tennis, tennis, tennis. So you gotta, I've got to thank my dad for it. Yeah. You know, you, people ask me now, would you push your kids? And I don't. He didn't really push us, but we had no option but to go to the tennis club. Yeah. So it was there it was, and luckily we made it. This is an amazing thing my sister did. This, she did a hist for my 70th birthday. She did me. That's me. Right. And this has got all, it's got Junior Wimbledon, it's got everything in it. Wow. She put this together. And I don't, how she got them. Yeah. You know, I was talking about, that's when I was 11. Yeah. You know. And I was a good footballer. I nearly played pro football. That's my dad. That's Wimbledon. Wow. That's when I won Wimbledon. That's the year I won Junior Wimbledon. Yeah. So how she put it together, I don't know. Yeah. That's very nice. And she went all the way back and then did everything. Yeah, it's amazing. So this is my sort of pride and joy, really. Yeah. Because it goes all the way up to... That is a lot of clippings. Look, it goes all the way up to business and yeah. goodness knows what. So, yeah, it, it's, there's Tim. Yeah. We found Tim when he was nine. Wow. Yeah, we put and him you, in. You we put knew, him, no, you? I did a deal oh. with a guy called, you remember him, a guy called Jim Slater, yeah. Slater Walker. Yeah. Yeah, he put the money in for the school and I put the money in for the tennis. Right. So we, we had eight kids that lived just to the school just around here. Yeah. And we, we went to boarding school. We, we trained them every day. We had an army instructor and we just basically put them through their paces every single day mm. and tennis was first and education was second right. and that's what happened there. 
And did you when you when he was nine? Did you think there's something special? Oh yeah, in him? yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he had. He never gave in. Yeah. And even when he was tired, he wasn't tired because mm. his mind told me I'm not tired. Where most kids will be tired. Yeah. And they will show they're tired and make sure you think they're tired <laughs> yeah. when actually they're not tired. Yeah. You can always push someone. I went about out of bound class when I was 17. And the guy had an incredible skill of taking you beyond tiredness. Mm. And you still liked it. Yeah. That is a real skill. Yeah. To put you through training that, you, you know, you, you, it's agony. But to come out the other side and actually wanted to do it again, mm. that's a skill. It's funny you say that. And um, it's a bit off script, but that's fine. Because uh, my son, he's eight and he's really good at golf. He got his first hole-in-one when he was three, which I believe was about 100 days sooner than the official Guinness really? Book of World Records. Yeah, but it wasn't official because they didn't get it on video. Yeah. He's had eight hole-in-ones. He's eight, really? eight years old. He played in the World Championships when he was five and then six. He was second in the British and he played really bad. If he'd have played all right, he'd have won it. He played in the European Championships. And I've had this sort of divide in myself and a bit of a push-pull between how much do I push him? Because on the one hand, I think... If he becomes a professional golfer, that is one of the, the greatest gifts I could give to him. Yeah. On the other hand, I think... And you could caddy. There you go. I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah, 20% management. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. But then on the other hand, I want to, I, I'm trying to be self-aware enough not to live my life vicariously through my son yeah. and push him too hard. And there's been times where I've probably backed off and been soft and times where I probably thought, yeah, maybe I pushed him too hard. What are your thoughts on that, having been raised in a... That's a really difficult question and... Uh, I think my dad did it in a way, A, we loved it. That's the most important thing. Yeah. I mean, if your son doesn't want to do it, then, you, you know, you can push all day long yeah. and ain't going to do it. But if he, if he obviously, he's going to have down days. We all have down days. Yeah. But if it's in his blood and he wants to do it, then I, I think you've got to be right behind him. Yeah. Um, it's a difficult one. It really mm. is. But if he's really got the talent and he really loves it, there is, I, I've been lucky. I made it in sport and I made it in business. And... People say to me, you know, what's your greatest memory? And nothing can take away from walking onto a tennis court at Wimbledon when you're playing for your country and the umpire says, David Lloyd playing for Great Britain. And you never hear your name again. It's just game to Great Britain. Mm. Nothing can buy that. Right. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So I've really backed off my son the last couple of years because I want it to come from him and not me. Yeah. And I want him to enjoy it. Um, definitely when he was younger, I was driving it. Like you mm. said, he didn't really have a choice because he was just around it. Yeah. But then when he started to um, tell me what he wants and his feelings and he could express himself more, and as a, a child resisting and rebelling against his dad, I don't yeah. want to do golf, I don't want to do yeah. golf, I don't want to do golf. So I backed off. Um, he's definitely got the talent and he doesn't even know it. Wow. Um, yeah. So. I like it. I mean, the, the best story, I think, in any sport uh, with regard to children is venus and serena yeah. williams their son their father roger has never ever picked a tennis racket up yeah never and they came from west la which you don't want to get lost in west la no. believe me anyway he has made those two girls from a book two of the greatest sports not just tennis players but sports people in the yeah. world and so it can't have been done without absolute dedication from him to them. Yeah. And so, you know what? Yeah. I probably favour that you, you should be more involved than you think. Yeah. That's interesting because that's, 
that's the way I've been, but I'm quite an, a, an obsessive personality. So, I mean, he was playing every day up until the age of six. You know, you get the odd day off, don't you? Um, and that's why he was so good. Yeah. It wasn't born being able to hit golf club uh, balls, but playing in the garden at age of one, down the range at age two, playing on the pitch and putt at age three, holding Yeah, well, I mean, he must be, you know, he wouldn't come back to it unless he has talent. No. I mean, golf's a difficult game. My son plays in, in the garden here and hits it. He loses too many balls. <laughs> yeah. He hits it over the fence. He, again, is very good, but his temperament, I don't think he's for golf because if he misses one shot, he nearly breaks his club. So, <laughs> so you know, he's going to be a rugby player. Right? Yeah. He can take it out on the rugby pitch. But <laughs> I, you know what? If he's got that sort of talent and he really loves it, then I think you've got to hide what you're doing, but you've got to push him. Yeah, great. Uh, I think that's the key, isn't it? Give him all the opportunities and encourage him along, yeah. but not make him feel like you're pushing like, him. Exactly. Yeah. Because... I do regret giving up certain things. I was good at cricket. I was good at golf. And my parents were always like, look, son, do whatever you want. We'll back yeah. you. But then when I gave up golf because I, I met a girl and, you know, when I gave up martial arts because I started business, looking back, if I'd have carried those on. You might have been good. Exactly. And, yeah. and I kind of. And you agree. Yeah. 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 It's a tough one. But no, I would, if he's got that sort of talent and he loves it, try and do it. And, and I love teaching kids things. I, co I mean, I found Tim Hemmer when he was nine and we pushed him and we pushed him and we pushed him because you could tell he wanted to be pushed. Right. He wanted to be as good as he could get, yeah. which was number three in the world. And people say, Tim, fail. Well, no, he, didn't. he didn't. You know, Who three else got to number three? Three in the world is a hell of a performance. Yeah. You know, and, you know I, I, I was his Davies Cup cat and people say, oh, he's not. He got, and, and you can always look himself in the mirror, he got to the very best of his ability. Mm. He couldn't have been any better than his ability allowed him. Yeah. Because ability comes in many ways. It comes in racket talent, where you've got your macro. It comes in in mental mental ability, where you've, where you've got Lendl and those guys. Yeah. And then when you get both, you get a Federer. Yeah. You know, and, that, and that's what it's all about. Yeah. I'll tell you what's interesting in the tennis world, because I love studying biographies, autobiographies, watching documentaries. I've watched the one on the Williams sisters. Yeah. You know, his dad was there from the really young oh, age. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but Andre Agassi, yeah. all through his autobiography, it's like, hated tennis, hated tennis, always hated tennis, hated tennis, hated tennis. And I think, wait a minute, you must be a multi-multi-millionaire. You're a world number billionaire, one. Billionaire. Billionaire, before, maybe, yeah. yeah. All the women loved you. And oh, you met your wife playing tennis as yeah. well. Couldn't have been that bad. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. You never, I mean, I, I know Andre a little bit. You, you never know what goes inside no. some, some people's heads of it, but... I think if you got him in a quiet night, if he ever did have a drink, then I'm not sure he'd say that. Yeah. Sells a lot of books. He's done all right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> He's done very well. Yeah. Okay, so back to your tennis career then. So you, you said earlier, yeah, you thought maybe you were going to be a tennis player, um, and then you turned out to be a very successful businessman. How did, how did that journey go? I think it started from, from my dad when I was 17, when he said, uh, we haven't got enough money for you to go to South Africa, but I want you to go to South Africa and you've got to sell my dresses all the way through to South Africa. Right. And I'm 17. Yeah. Uh, so there I am, and we're going back a long time. Africa's my favourite continent, but 60 years ago, it, you know, it's not, it wasn't easy. Yeah. So there I am selling these dresses all the way. I went to Tanzania, Zambia, Kenya, Nigeria, all the way through, Rhodesia as it was then, sold some dresses, and was that and, to earn the right to better uh, play tennis? Exactly. So right. I earned I earned a lot of things. I learned a lot of things on on a deal, when to accept the price, when to not. I learned 
when the taxi driver was trying to con you. And, <laughs> and, uh, Which so must happen a bit over there. All the time. Yeah. And so just by natural instinct, I learned to protect myself and to know what was good and bad. Mm. And I always did. I love maths. Uh, you know, I left school at 15. I got two O-levels. I got maths and, maths and history, failed everything else. Uh, I was a disaster at school. Very bad, very badly Many behaved. successful people But I love maths and I did all my own figures. I did all my own business plans and it just excited me. And traveling the world, I saw all these beautiful tennis clubs and indoors and everyone was enjoying it. I worked in Canada and I worked in Holland and we had nothing here. So I said, right, that's it. My dream started and every passing moment for about five years when I still played, I went to every club, I assimilated all the knowledge I could, the good and the bad, and I put myself in the position of a member. And in my head, I built up a, a dream club, mm. which in my head, I said, nothing is going to stop me ever getting the money to, to build it. And when you say you had this dream, when did that dream materialise in your head? Was it, was it 19, 17, 1975. Okay. Yeah. It was in Canada when I went to work there. I was the, I, I conned myself into the job pretending that I had been a manager, which of course I wasn't. I was a tennis player, but they liked my English accent. Yeah. So suddenly I got this tennis coach manager of this beautiful club in Toronto, and I loved it. And and I, from day one I thought, I can't do this. And mm. I, so I learned the financial side of it. I learned how to manage the people because a tennis player is a very individual game. Yeah. I have to beat the other guys. I don't eat. Yeah. So to turn that into, into um, making people work for you is difficult. Mm. And in the end of the day, your business can only be successful if your people working for you are part of it. Yeah. And, I think we did that very well. We we gave share options. I tried to persuade them that that when they were the managers of the club, it wasn't my name on the door. It was their name on the door. It was their club. They could run it if they wanted to to, to uh, sell lobsters and and and, and burgers. They could <laughs> if they wanted to do something else. They could. Yeah. It was their club. Yeah. Long as they had very strict financial controls, which they did have. Yeah. Then they could do what they wanted, and they got to in the team yeah okay so if it's okay with you we'll come back to the the health club story which i guess you're most famous for in addition to the tennis since you exited the health clubs what have you been doing since i did a lot of things i i, I I've, I've done a lot of properties which i love doing i love I, I i love seeing a blank piece of earth or whatever and and designing something and building it and and making it work and now the newest venture, which we've been doing two years, uh, four years actually, sorry, uh, is uh, called Adrenaline World. It's, I used to own a trampoline park and I realised straight away that it was fantastic in the winter, but when the sun came out, no one came. Mm. And if they'd been there twice, they didn't want to come a third time. So I thought, wow, I've got to put more things into it. So I sold the trampoline and since then, I've built up what I believe is an adventure world that's high action where people come and do it uh, under one massive roof, but also outdoors as well. Mm. The reason David Lloyd Leisure is still going and it's still the strongest possible in the world is it's indoor and outdoor. Yeah. We're not dependent on our lovely weather. 
mm. which a business, you can't, de- you've got to try and cut out in any business uh, the things that can damage you or, right. or, or at least lessen them. Yeah. And the weather is one we have to do here. Yeah. And so my, it's, it's expensive. Every, every adrenaline world is going to be 10 million pounds. We've got two, which we're starting to be built now. And it's indoor and outdoor yeah. featuring zip lines, featuring bungee jumping, featuring uh, theme golf, the- featuring go-karting and our, um, what we call an anchor, anchor uh, uh, ride, if you want to call it that, is we have around the top of the building, that's why it's 22 metres high, we have a, 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 a roller glider that you go into a harness and you fly around the building above everything at, tw- at 50 kilometres an hour. Wow. So you're in there and and it's these these things we're doing are just way beyond anyone's ever seen in this country. Yeah. One one price, you come in, put your fingerprint, you're in, you stay for one and a half hours, and it's only fifteen pounds for one and a half hours. If you want to stay more, it just ticks up. You don't have to check out, you carry on. Yeah. And you can stay there all day if you want. We've got lovely food. It's indoor and outdoor. It's, yeah. To me, it's it's something going to really take off. That's the that's the dome. And this is the real skull. So that's that, that that you can see. There's the man there, and around the top here is uh, a snake, a metal like, like a, a, a ski lift, and so it goes all the way around like that. And then you're strapped in, and your harness goes around the top of that building at about fifty kilometers an hour. And you're looking down at this. So you basically you're, you're feel like you're, you're flying you're at you 50 kilometres an hour. And looking, you're looking down at all these people because this is all open That's plan. faster than my moped used to go. When's this going to be built? Now. We start in January. Yeah. Oh. So you're flying around there like right. that. And it's good for kids, yeah, is it? See, look. Wow. So you are up there and they're down there. Yeah. So could like an eight-year-old go on that? Oh, yes. The, ah. I mean, all these wire walks. We've, we've, got a, we've got more wire walks than go ape, okay, inside. Wow. So... It's done from, we've done it where this one is only that high. Mm-hmm. So you've got three age groups. So this is from three to five. Yeah. Then, and then you go all the way up to the, to the top, right. which is very scary because yeah. you're right up here. Yeah. Because you know, yeah. you, you're right up high. You're all strapped in and everything. And, mm. uh, you know, um, but they, this company does them all. You've got outside ones. Yeah. So this is what you do outside. You wrap it around the trees. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. So it's all that. And we've got um, we've got climbing walls. There we go. And they're all educational. So what you do here is you de- you design these yourself. These are twenty five meters by two meters. So we're doing alphabets. So you climb up A, B, C, right, and that's yeah. all. This has yeah. gone way beyond your normal, you know, mm. your normal thing. So you exited a health club business, and you're in a similar business. Sort of, yeah. It's it's public, and you know, it's it's. We like to talk to people. We like to encourage people. Our clubs are membership. This is pay as you play. But again, you know, you've got to, if you can keep 95% of the people coming in your doors happy, you've succeeded. Yeah. It's impossible to do 100%. Yeah. And we think we can do that, A, with the price, B, with the quality of the equipment. The equipment alone is four and a half million pounds. Wow. That's a lot of money. Mm. Uh, we've got one going near Bedford, not too far from where you are. So it, 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 it's happening, it's there, we've done it. I've self-designed or purpose done everyone myself and we're ready to go. Right, and when you said you've done some property, 
Do you build for yourself to live in or do you build and develop and sell or do you hold on and have a portfolio? A bit of both. Uh, my biggest one was in Barbados. Um, we did a big, uh, beautiful resort there called Sugar Hill. Yeah. 102 oh, properties. Al Alfie Best? Yep. Okay, so he's got stuff on Sugar Hill. Oh, really? He's on Sugar Hill. Okay, yeah, yeah well, of our, our, first one, our first one that we sold was to Cliff, to Cliff yeah. Richard, because we taught him tennis. So, we, you know, he, he bought the first plot, plot one, was and it, it is the best plot. Is it plot. custom built for him? We or? built it. He wouldn't do it unless I built it for him, so right. I, I built it for him. Yeah. And it's right there, and that's where Tony Blair used to go and stay, and he's yeah. still got it. Uh, it's 102 properties. Wow. Uh, ranging from 8, 9, 10 million dollar houses on, 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 on the ridge, which see that the sea is about a mile and a half away, but it looks like it's in your garden yeah. because it's on, on, on the west coast. And then coming back, you've got smaller villas, and then we've got a, like a condo village and some apartments mm. with a David Lloyd tennis centre, yeah. which got four courts, got a lovely gym, and it was very successful. We sold out in about three years, all the properties. Yeah. Mm. So you did all right with that? Mm. It was great, and it's still there, and it still thrives, and it's not my name anymore because we sold the whole whole, uh, whole resort. Yeah. But it was very successful, so yeah. All right, so you kept yourself busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we, we try to be busy. Yeah. Yeah. Why did you um, exit? Why did you sell? Um, from my research, there looked like there were two sales, one at 200 and something million and one at 900 and something million. Um, so well, when what, did you sell and why did you sell and why didn't you keep doing it? Why, what happened was we, we which was one, which was, a, again, doesn't quite match with the Davis Cup, but one of the most exciting days was when David Lloyd Leisure floated. Mm. I can remember it. I, I don't often wear suits, but I had a suit there. <laughs> and in, this is going back. So in those days, trading wasn't like it is now where you can trade 100 points in a minute. Yeah. In those days, a, a point swing of 14 was a lot. Yeah. Because they're all done on ticker tapes for goodness knows what. Right. Anyway, it opens, and the, the chap who floated us, a very nice man called David Cohen from Flemings, if you float, your broker and advisor, his job is to keep the seller happy, and the buyer happy. And as you know him well, that's hard to do. Yeah. And so he has to keep the spread about right. Because obviously, if you float at a pound and the actual price on the day is three pounds, you've undersold your company because there's a profit of two, two pounds. Per so he's got to balance it. And the balance is between 10 and 12%. And therefore, the people selling their shares get a value, and the people buying in also get a value, and he did it to perfection. Mm. So it comes on the ticker tape, you know, this David Lloyd is floating £1 on 30p or whatever, and it ended the day at £1.50. That is perfect. Yeah. It was a perfect flotation. <clears throat> we were oversubscribed seven times, so it was perfect. There was there was a market, people who had sold were happy, and and I loved the city. Everyone said I was going to hate the city. I mean, I didn't like getting dressed up in a tie all the time, <laughs> but... but I liked the city because I had something I could talk about. Mm. You know, I used to do speeches for all the institutions and I might follow someone. It's actually a Labour MP from, from Birmingham. His business was selling bolts and, and screws. So he used to go up and give this audience a, a great story about a bolt and a screw. Yeah. So he'd go, oh, 
So I go up there, I can talk about members, what happened in the swimming pool, what happened here, what happened there. And I, Tim Henman, I, so suddenly I get everyone clapping and loving it. Mm. And they keep saying, oh, you're very lucky to be able to talk about that. Yeah. And I could. And bearing in mind, I, I worked. When we opened Heston, I got all the figures wrong. I only had 17 staff. That same club today has 65. Right. But I had no idea. I was a tennis player. So I was doing everything, which was great. I was knowing how the toilets had to be changed. I knew how the foul sewer went wrong. I knew how to bet the bar. I knew all the fiddles with people taking money and bottles and goodness knows what. <laughs> so I learned the hard way. Yeah. And then you build up. And so when I talked to a bar manager, I could talk to him from strength mm. because I'd done it. Yeah. And therefore we had a, it, it helped. And I, I never, those days were great. And we mm. built up this empire and it, it came along and we, and, we, and we floated and we did a perfect job. And what, what the was the The story value? then, well, we, when we floated, it was about 80 million. Wow. Then, we, then we, we, I had a call from an old friend of mine uh, who used to be the head broker for James Capel. He called me, he said, David, he said, I've got this company, very friendly company, very family company that want to buy your business. I said, it's not for sale. I don't need the money. I mean, people were throwing money at me. Yeah. You know, I mean, I had great institutions for a small company. It was unheard of. I had Prudential, Mercury. I had, I had companies that normally wouldn't invest unless they got 100 million. Yeah. They wouldn't do it. But they loved the business. They loved being seen at the clubs. I mean, yeah, it was our AGMs. We broke the mold. We didn't have an AGM in London. We had our AGM at a club. Right. And they could spend the day at the club mm. and they loved it. So anyway, he came along and said, I said, I'm. Anyway, but my job as chairman is to maximise the share price. That is my job. Yeah. And it's tough sometimes. So I met them. Happened to be a company called Whitbread. And I sat down and I said, no, I'm not going to do it. The guy kept on to me. The third time I said, okay, I better meet him. So I met him. I met him at the golf club, actually, my golf club called Wisley. Mm -hmm. And he sat around there and he told his story, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, okay, here's the deal. My share price was two pounds and twenty p. I said, "Here's the deal." It was only and about how a year. Share the company did you own at that point? Uh, 10, 15 percent. Yeah, because um, we had floated, yeah. and it was only a year and a bit after floating, so it was wow. quite early on in our yeah. in our cycle. But I said, "Here's the deal. It's four pounds a share, not negotiable. A main board position for me immediately, and David Lloyd Leisure is ring fenced within the Whitbread." business. I said, that's it. Not that's it. So I walked away thinking, ah, that's gone. That's right. I'm, out, I'm out of this. Yeah. So next morning I get a call. It's on. I said, you can't be serious. <laughs> so, so I'm dead and buried in the, in the water because yeah. I, I got to now go for it. And so you only yeah. said that to put him off. Yes. You had no, no, no intention no, of I should have said five quid, yeah. ten quid yeah. or whatever. I didn't. But I said four because it, it was double and, you know, mm. and, and the main board position, this, that and the other. And Anyway, he said, yes, yeah, so then I'm dead. My job's to maximise the share price. So then we got down to the nitty-gritty, and they were delivering everything except on the day of signing, a guy called Mike, so Michael Angus, I hadn't met him, he called me into his office, he was a chairman, and he said, everything's great, we're going to do really well, but we can't give you a main board position. I said, that's it then, sorry, I shook your hand. That's my world. Mm. So I picked my stuff up and walked out and walked back to my broker, who happened to be JP Morgan. It was a long ride. I hadn't got any bloody money, so I had to walk. But I couldn't get a taxi. So 
I call up my best friend who was running it. I said, cancel everyone, get rid of the lawyers, everything's done. So he said, okay. So I get back there and he looked at me, he said, David, you can't do that. It's been leaked. The share price is over three and a half pounds. You, I said, you're right. So I said, okay, this is what you do. You phone Bearings, who was their nominee. I said, you tell them the deal's on, but David will not sign a contract. So the deal was done and I didn't have a contract. Right. Which allowed me to walk out any time I wanted. Right. And that was the deal. Yeah. And I tried hard to work with them. It's not that they're bad and I'm good. It's just that we're different. Mm. An entrepreneur is personal, as you know. Yeah. And it's his business and he knows his staff and he treats them as equals. When you're a whipbread, you're just a number. Mm. I got up every day and I thought, I don't want to go to work today. Oh, and right. and any, you know, any, any, anybody who used to work with me, I said, guys, if you don't want to get out of bed to come and work for me, don't, don't come. Yeah. Just go. Yeah. If you're not enjoying it, finish. And how long did that take? About a year. So oh, I right. left, yeah. uh, left and, and I took, I took, I presented with them when I was there, Australia. And they said, oh, we've had bad experience in Australia. We can't go there. I said, but you're selling beer. Mm. I'm doing something else. Yeah. Anyway, so they said no. So I said, okay. When, when we had the severance, I said, I don't take any money. I don't want any payoff. But I want to have the right to do any David Lloyd centre anywhere in the Southern Hemisphere, yeah. including Australia. And they said, okay. And so that's what happened. And that's what happened. I left. After about nine months, uh, my... Son was a very keen golfer, and I said to him, I said, Jesus, Whitbread are messing up this business. I mean, you know, I can't help you, and I won't help you because I'm restricted. But I said, here's the number of five guys. If you call them, introduce yourself, and say you want to do a next generation, which is what we had both agreed it should be named, and ask them for investments, and tell them, I can join you in a year and when I'm free to do so. Mm. And so he went out and raised 25 million. And these guys... And how old was he at the time? 22, 23. He gave up up his golf and he was a very good golfer. And these guys were people who were investors in my business at the beginning. And they're very famous people now. John Magnia, Mm. John McManus, uh, McManus, exactly. Dermot Desmond, all those guys. So they shoved the money in. And I stayed out of it, but I did Australia. Right. And I went to live in Australia. And to this day, the next generation clubs are still in Australia and yeah. are thriving. And how many clubs are there? There's six. There's five in Australia, one in New Zealand. My son, my son is still a director of them. Yeah. But the other side was sold back. This is where your price comes. Yeah. The, when we floated, when we sold to, to Whitbread, it was 201 million. Right. Yeah. When, when we bought back David Lloyd Leisure and then sold it, Back to DTR, it was 960 million. Wow, and what did you buy it off Whitbread for? 201. No, we bought it from Whitford for 900. Right. Yeah. Then it went down and, and DTR paid under the odds for it, 600 million, and now it's gone up. They've been running it for ever more, and then it's up to about a billion again in wow. value. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I don't have any more shares. No. So, <laughs> so uh, no, no. But it, it was a. Yeah, enjoyable mm. but frustrating as well yeah. but you learn a lot yeah well it sounds like i picked up a couple of recurring themes you managed at important points in your life to not have restrictions on yourself yeah i.e i'll do the deal but i'm not signing a contract 
uh, and you kept the option open for the Southern Hemisphere, because often in deals like that, you're you're tired, aren't yeah. you? You've got exclusives and non-competes. Yeah, yeah and, exactly. And that was obviously important to you, was it? Well, no. I mean, I, the reason that I presented, I presented to the Whitbread board my business plan for Australia. I'd found the site, and it went round. This is they'd had these. They have an executive meeting at Whitbread every single week where 40 people get round a table. I mean, it's mind-blowing. I said, you can't run a business. These guys are supposed to be running your business. Get them out there. (laughs) What are you doing? So every time went round and and, and Australia came up, oh, I'm not sure. So in the end, I said, look, bugger this. I said, it's four million quid. I'll put a million of my own money and I'll borrow the rest. And that's what I was going to do within Whitbread. But then Mm. I left anyway, so I did it. Right. And how, what was the time frame from starting your first health club to, to um, selling? The first club opened in 1982. Right. And we, we sold to Whitbread in 1993. And then we, uh, sorry, we floated in 1993. Yeah. And we sold to Whitbread in 1995. Right. So, so it was 11 years from start-up to essentially sale. Yeah. And um, I know this is a massive question, but let's have some fun anyway. What did you learn in those 11 years? Learn or earn? Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll come to the earning bit in the cheeky round. <laughs> uh, I learned a lot. I learned, I learned very important to delegate. Mm-hmm. Once you've got the trust of people, you've got to delegate. Otherwise, because, how can you grow? Exactly. But at the beginning, you don't want to give that up. No. And that's really hard. For every entrepreneur. What if they Very mess it hard. up? What if they ruin my reputation? Exactly. And yeah. so that was the hardest thing. Uh, putting good people around you and making them feel it's their business and their, their life and not just a number. Yeah. Um, and treating people fairly. I, I, everyone said I was very tough. I probably was. I was fair. Yeah. You know, I, people say, oh, you're a dictator. I wasn't at all. I actually was the opposite to what people think. I let people run their business yeah. within tight financial controls. Yeah. But if they want, to, if they want to, to, to sell something different, they can. Now, which is what I'm sad about, if you go to a David Lloyd Club now, it's all a standard menu. I don't like that. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's easy to do. Yeah. And a lot of these big companies go, not necessarily easily, the way they think they can control the margin better. Right. But I didn't think that if you if you want to join an exclusive club, you know, you're going to make it special to that person. Yeah. Uh, and they couldn't do that. And that's part of the reason why I left. I, I felt them too restraining in their. An entrepreneur can grow a business very quickly, but in a different way to a corporate body. I'll tell you something that's really funny. One chap put on uh, in one of the threads in this group. Um, can you ask David, why are all the women so hot that go to his clubs? <laughs> well, I can only answer that question by saying I had, I had the greatest ease in raising finance from banks. <laughs> Every bank manager had their board meetings and their meetings during the yoga class. Right. <laughs> Maybe that is your secret. <laughs> they, they love to come to the clubs. Yeah. And so, yeah, we have great, great members. <laughs> So you said just before we went live, um, being an entrepreneur and then running like a corporation, very different. So what are the differences? Well, I think, you know, I, mean, I, think, I think a corporate company is scared of an entrepreneur making mistakes and, 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 and doing just his own thing, uh, which is not true. A good entrepreneur actually does the opposite because otherwise you can't grow. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, Branson, I, I, you know, if you ask Branson how they... Um, 
change how in their banks they're into into trading their currency he, he'll have an inkling but he won't know exactly because yeah. he can't yeah so he, as long as he the person doing that he trusts and he loves to be working for virgin the same goes for david Lloyd. as long as the people not everybody but if you can get most of your staff wanting to work for you making them part and parcel of the family then an entrepreneur can grow it quicker than a corporate sure. a corporate when, when, when we sold to our internal rate of return, we would not do anything unless we got at least a 20% rate of return and at least we got our money back in three to four years. Yeah. Now, if you go to a Whitbread that is floated on, 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 on the main market, a big, big company, mm. their shareholders are quite happy with an 8 to 9% internal rate of return. Yeah. An entrepreneur isn't. Mm. So it's a different, totally different mindset. And they have meeting after meeting, and yeah. I'm thinking, oh, I can't, I can't handle all that. You know, it, yeah. so it's just different. Is and, it true what people say about the difference between an entrepreneur and a corporate? Is an entrepreneur can be agile and make decisions and happen quickly, and then in these massive corporates, everything just takes forever. Yeah. is that true? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. it doesn't need to be. I'm sure. Um, I, I was a great follower of of, of Tiny Roland because what he did, he bought the companies, but then what he did, he set them all up as individuals, and he let them run. Yeah. Because you know, Whitbread, they they bought they bought uh, at the same time as they bought us, they bought Cafe Rouge. Within one year, the owner bought it back. They bought something else. The owner bought it back. Yeah. Well, why? Yeah. They can't have done it well, can they? Yeah. Why do they buy a business for two hundred and something million and then take the management away? Don't make any sense to me. Mm. Give them a bigger role. Tight, tight. In other words, Whitbread become the bank, and they say, right, you've got twenty million to spend. Here it is. Long as you do this, this, and this, and your returns are this, that, and the other, get on with it. Yeah, you can control it by how much money you give and by the returns. Yeah, but by, by controlling it, I don't like pyramids. I'm flat, mm. and a corporate is that. Why do you think they do that then? I've no idea. Probably, probably so the guy at the top can always blame the guy down there. Right. Not because they are able to have scalability. I don't. Know. I mean, you know, how do these guys? Because they get really away? scaled Costa, didn't uh, they? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, how how does guys like the guy from RBS get away with what he did. He, 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 he blame these ones, you see, right. where, yeah. you know, my club manager is accountable. Yeah. And we had a computer system, which was way beyond anyone's time. In 1982, we set it up, and they were all linked by cable. So Scotland was linked by cable to London, and they could talk on the computer cable, so it didn't cost any money, yeah. and the computers were lifetime. So the guy in Glasgow could see the guy in London and see any memberships he'd sold that day, right. lifetime. Yeah. And I encouraged them all to be competitive. Mm. Everybody... It, to succeed in life, you've got to have competition. And people yeah. thought we've got to, there's a school it. down the road there, oh, you can't have competition. That's a load of rubbish. Yeah. You need competition, healthy competition. Yeah. And so these clubs, oh, he sold more Cokes than me today. So the guy would put on, this guy here, if he's got any brains, would put on a special offer for Coke. Yeah. So, so you're encouraging them. Mm. And that to me is really important to have that competitive spirit with healthy friendship between them. Yeah. So my managers all know knew each other, but they wanted to be the best that week. Mm. Yeah, I think competition is really underrated um, because it forces innovation. It makes you invest in your products and services. It, it forces growth. And without all of that, you just become complacent, Absolutely. relaxed. Nothing, Absolutely. You, you wouldn't be incentivized to refurb your clubs, to put new equipment in. Nope. I mean, they recently just refurbed big time the David Lloyd in Peterborough. 
And that wouldn't have been just because, oh, well, it's time. Probably would have been driven by the other clubs taking members. Absolutely. Off. I mean, they have to do that. I mean, you know, and that's the problem when, when you've got a private equity buyer, a private equity buyer, which is what David Lloyd Ledger is now, a private equity buyer normally has a lifespan of investment between three and five years. Yeah. And on the fourth year, they spend a bit and sell it for the highest price. Yeah. I mean, that's what... They, they, they've got no blood in their veins. No, not I mean, they, you know, enough. No, and they've got no yeah. blood in their veins. They're, that's what they are. Yeah. You know? and, and that's sad, you know, mm. whereas an entrepreneur who's built it up from scratch, my name is still on the blooming door, you know. I mean, yeah. I, I, I know. And I think, oh, no, I can't bear that. I still get phone calls from people. The showers are cold in Glasgow. <laughs> and I'm thinking, hold on a second. Yeah. I, I sold it 20 years ago. <laughs> the shower. But, you know, I talked to them all. Yeah. And, you know, you've got to. I went to one, one year when we only had the London clubs in Eastbourne, this is true, New Year's Eve, I did all six parties. Wow. Personally. Oh, that's such a hard thing, just doing the parties. Yeah, <laughs> but you can't drink because I'm driving everywhere. Right. So I went down to Eastbourne first, so then I walked All in one night? All in one night. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And because they all knew me. Everyone, yeah. everyone knew me. I speak to all the members. Because at the end of the day, your best feedback is with your members. I mean, mm. your members are your... If, if, you, don't you, have, you, if you don't have any members, then you... You're dead. Yeah. And if the members go away, oh, crappy David Lloyd, that's terrible. Yeah. That's terrible. You're not going to get everybody. Uh, but if you can keep most of them happy and talking about you, then that's your number one. You know, we, we used to spend zero on marketing. I, all we did was every guest that came in, they put, they filled a form in and the receptionist duty every single day before they left, which was midnight, probably till about quarter past 12, they input every single guest that had been there. And in the morning, that guest got an email. Yeah. Dear Mr. So-and-so or dear Mrs. So-and-so, you went to the David Lloyd Club today. I hope you had a great day. And by the way, as a special offer to you, your month, your month subscription is free because you, you didn't, you, that's, you didn't have to do any marketing. Yeah. So suddenly my marketing cost is zero. Yeah. You know, people, again, marketing. I mean, how do you quantify, how does a big company quantify giving, I don't know, 10 million pounds to a marketing company? I, I don't know how you quantify it. Mm. I've never known how you quantify marketing. Yeah, no. Well, I suppose you've got to track the return, but... But you can't really, because no. you don't know if it's them or, or something else. True. That's the problem. And they're going to defend their own position yeah, and tell you So what. we never had... I mean, in my day, I never had a marketing. I had an internal sales and sales manager who did all of that. Yeah. So you believe on good service and looking after people? Absolutely. Yeah. And making your members your best... Your number one. Yeah. Well, I suppose they were your marketing department. Absolutely. Yeah, they are, and and all, all my and when I did it, all the all the members, all the, the 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 staff, they were encouraged to to really, if they couldn't remember the guy's name when he phoned up after being on the front desk a few weeks, then they shouldn't be in a job. Yeah, they should not. I mean, the member is our bread and butter. Yeah, you know, when when you get on an aeroplane or somebody's, oh, hi, Mister Lloyd, welcome back. You know what? I know it's done from a script, but I tell still you. Still works. I, I met the Queen Mother when she was 100 because we used to sponsor a, a, a race at Sandown. And I know she's been prepped, but she's 100. And she said, Hi, Mr. Lloyd. And I, said, oh, I said, Oh, okay. She said, How is Mr. Henman doing? And I thought, Wow. Mm. That is unbelievable. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that, I, know, I know there's a guy there, but he didn't prompt her. And you can still get it wrong. <laughs> and, and 
Hey, how's he doing well? And hey, did he do it? And I'm thinking, that is unbelievable. Mm. That is unbelievable. Roger Williams, I met him only once because they trained at Rains Park before Wimbledon. And the next year, I met him for five minutes. I'm nobody to him. I'm, an, you know, he's an American. You know, he's known, you know. So next year at Wimbledon, I, I happened to be going up to, to the uh, to, to the uh, players' bit, and he said, "Hi, David. How are you?" That's unbelievable. Mm. And how does that make me feel? Yeah, that's a skill. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, so changing tack a bit, uh, I've got some friends who have sold their companies. My, my friend Neville Wright sold Kitty Care in the 70s. I suppose the, the, the number doesn't really matter. Um, Steve Smith, who were at his house, weren't we, um, a couple of weeks ago, sold Panland 72. I know Steve very well. Yeah, yeah, he, really, he, he was he's lovely. In, he's invested in this cashless system, which we're buying. He was telling us about Swoops. that, wasn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. he was telling us Great about system. that. Yeah. Fantastic. And you know what the commonality that for, between you and him is? In the early days of your clubs, when you were sort of growing them, you had really good software and systems. Oh yeah, yeah. That communicated absolutely very quickly, and yeah. that, that that really yeah. sort of resonated. No, you know, and I know still. I mean, he contacted me quite often. Yeah. Oh, yeah. great. Yeah. So, um, I, and there's been a couple of other people I've spoken to, and I, I guess a lot of people wouldn't understand this, which is why I'm asking your take on it. Some of my friends have sold their companies for 70, 80 million. Of course, you'd, you'd assume, looking at it from the outside in, you know, movie style, it must be the best day of their life. And most of them, it was a really bad day. How was it for you? Terrible day. I mean, same. I mean, I didn't want to sell, but I had no option to, 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 to float. And then I, and then, then although I tried really hard to work with Whitbread, I knew I couldn't, so I had to leave. And how much money did you pocket out of that deal? Uh, the first deal uh, was about 20 million, but I, they all went into trusts. Right. But you still made been... 20 million in oh, one no, day. Oh, no, no. I mean, Whitbread said to me, what are you doing? Why don't you sit on the beach in Barbados in your house? I said, what are you talking about? I mean, don't, don't you understand? Yeah. See, that's what they want to do. Right. The corporate ladder is 65, 60, yeah. get out of here, 50 million in pocket, a few options, et cetera, et cetera, and disappear. Yeah. But an entrepreneur, he lives and breathes it. Yeah. It's his. My name is still there. The members yes. still think it's me. <laughs> yeah. And so, I, I, yeah. Big, so the money big, wasn't enough to no, make no, you No, 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 big chunk. I, don't, I, know, I would still be here to this day if it, if, if, I, if it wasn't a public company. Yeah. Once you go public, unfortunately, you're at... Do you regret going public? Yeah. Really? Because of how it changed? Yeah, because I had to get out. If right. I'd stay private, I'd stay in. Yeah, because Richard Branson did the same, felt he the did, same, did bought it back. Yeah, he did, yeah. exactly. Yeah, no, 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 a bad mistake, but... Yeah. You know, it was something that happened. And everyone said, oh, you got a lot of money out of it. And you know what? I, yeah, that is really secondary to yeah. something you've built up. This and, is fascinating conversation, know, by the way, because, yeah. uh, you know, I know a lot of people who want to build a business, exit, sell. Um, and I don't think they get the, okay, if all that's left is money, that can be quite lonely. Uh, and it's true that, I mean, yes, yes. I mean, some people are doing it just for that. Where the added problem for me was, it's actually got my name. Yes, of course. So everywhere I drive, I mean, in, in we did the greatest marketing. I don't know why they stopped, by the way. The greatest marketing thing I ever did, which I might, my guy did for me, was London Taxes. Mm. They put the David Lloyd name on London Taxes. Eight, they, we, we allowed eight black cabs per club. So we had, about 10, we had about 80 black cabs, and it would be... Enfield or Chigwell or whatever, and they drove around London. We didn't pay them, but they got a free membership. Yeah. 
And we had to do this for three or four years. And every year, the Evening Standard did, did one piece with all the cabs in one David Lloyd car park. Wow. And, I mean, the publicity we got and getting in the car, and it was mind-blowing. Yeah. Uh, and then they stopped it. Yeah. You know, and I'm thinking, wow. So the hardest bit, and I still get blamed when it goes wrong. And it's name you know, you know, And I'm thinking, okay. Yeah. Um, but, no, it's a big, big chunk. A big chunk of your life goes with it. Yeah, you get a lot of money out, mm. but. And I think the proof in that is you're back in a similar industry. So yeah, I'm going to do. It, I'm going to do it again, and we're going to call it David Lloyd's Adrenaline World because I'm allowed to do that, and I will do that. Yeah. Because not. Be, I think it adds the credibility. Uh, we've done it before. They know we're going to do it, and they know the sort of standard they're going to get. Mm. A lot of my old team are. They're not as old as me, but they're old. They're ready to start up because yeah. they've done it. They want to do it. You know, they're retired, but they 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 love the buzz, mm. and you know. When, you, when you're given the, the autonomy of running a David Lloyd club, which is what I did, they love it. Because mm. in and a I, way, you're giving them a mini entrepreneur role in... Well, I take them around the club. Yeah. I, every manager, when I was there, I take them around the club and I say to him, at the end of the tour, what do you see? And, of course, he's got my name on it. They say, oh, David Lloyd. I said, no, you've got to imagine that's your name. My name's gone. Yeah. I'm giving it to you. And I said, if you would spend your pound, you can spend mine. Yeah. And so I, I did actually give it to them. Yeah. And they loved that. Right. And they did walk around like it was their club. They did take the dirty coffee cups from the table. Yeah. Because I did. I used to do car tours. Like when my staff used to start, um, I'd put three or four of them in my car and I'd take them a tour around Peterborough, show them the properties that we owned, show them the first house where the company started and doing all that. And they felt really inclusive, and I haven't done that for ages, so we need to let Katie know. I need yeah. to do that again because we've got 85 staff in there now, and they don't yeah. know the story. No, no, no. Yeah. See, I think it's so it's, hard actually to get big. Absolutely. I'm going to be doing this full-time just driving <laughs> around Peterborough. No, it's absolutely it's important. And, you know, people – and we used to have – you know, they did their own budgets every year. I believe in zero budgeting. No one else does. I mean, mm. it's very simple, but no one does it. And, of course, if you've got a bad budget, all you do is just – and inflation, and that's it. Yeah. Well, that's not how it works. Yeah. How is it? How does it work then? A zero budget is every single year you go to a blank piece of paper right. and you say, right, how many receptions do I need? Not how many have I got? Yeah. So you cut, you cut in some, and you extend in another, right? Because you're doing it from real, yeah, blank, right? Because otherwise, all you do is self-perpetuate your mistake. Yes. And yeah. therefore, zero budgeting is crucial in any business. Any right. business. Yeah. It's a pain in the backside to do. Because you've got to go through it from day one again, and you've got to actually analyse. You've got to go through every bill. Um, we were, we were, we were very tight on things. Although the club manager could do it, he he had to get three quotes for everything. Mm. He had to do the things that he had to. The beer had to be signed in by two people. All those things were in it. But then those two, then he could do it. But the financial aspect about it was very tight. Yeah. Because it has to be, of course, for any business. Otherwise, there's no margin. Yeah. Mm. So I'll tell you what, we've got three or four questions in this theme, but why don't we do a test on this cheeky round? You are our first ever guest right. for a cheeky round. Okay. We're so I, I apologise in advance. Well, I, I won't take my clothes off. No, no, <laughs> no. no I'll, I'll do anything, but I won't <laughs> do right. that. I won't do that. So, David, um, what's the most you've ever made in a year? <laughs> Very cheeky. <laughs> uh, 
uh, in a year, probably 30 million. Wow. Nice. All right. Um, what's your most indulgent purchase? Cars. Yeah. I love them. Yeah, I love cars. I love cars. So which car has been your most indul uh, indulgent purchase? Probably I had an F50 Ferrari. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have a Testarossa in my garage. I, did, I, I had beautiful. I had one of those. That's one of the one of my early favorite ones. It is, but you, you can't. There's no. No, no it's no, a dog to you drive. You can't take it. You can't no. take it. You can't. There's no steering. No, there's no power people steering. People laugh at you. I, I, every time I went to London, I had it when I was floating. Every bloody car um, park, I scrape all the wheels. Yeah. Another thousand quid. People don't understand the pain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got a 1987 one with twelve thousand oh, on the clock. It's Yeah, everything. My favourite is the F40. I mean, I just think that's... Yeah. Well, I got Do you, the F you still have the F50? No, I sold it. And you made on it, I bet. I did. I'd already pre-sold it. Really? So you bought it having pre-sold I was... I, in those days, F50s, you weren't allowed to... The, the, you couldn't sell first-hand, in other words, direct from Ferrari to the Middle East. Right. They had to wait. Yeah. So I had pre-sold it to oh. someone. So I, I was allowed to drive it for six months, yeah. but I wasn't allowed to put more than 2,000 kilometres on the clock. Based on Ferrari or based on the Middle East request? Middle East request. Right. So You're yeah. not supposed to do it. Right. I mean, those days, oh, well, Ferrari they, were, they were, they were keeping the market. Right. Now it's open. Yeah. Now there's lots of them there. But no, that's what I did. So I used to right. take it out. I used to have a house, in, the, in fact, in this estate. Yeah. And I used to go out early in the morning, right, because the M25 is just down the, yeah. down the road there. I think I'm going to like this and story. And very <laughs> early in the morning... And all I did was go to all the roundabouts and accelerate from the roundabout to, to my, to my, <laughs> and see how fast. And you're literally going out the back door. Yeah. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. And what, would you, are you okay to say what you bought and what you sold it for? I paid about, oh, it was a long time ago, about 300 and then sold it on about for four hundred. It wasn't you know, wow yeah. in six months. Yeah. I mean, what they must be? What, oh, now they're millions. A couple of million yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. It's a long time ago. Yeah, had a lot of Ferraris. Uh, I'm now a Bentley maniac. Um, yeah, saw the. Um, I love your number plate. Yeah. Yeah, okay. our driver said that David didn't have to move those letters around because you know sometimes try and spell their name, no, but it's no, not no, quite no. right and they have to move it around. But yours yeah. is Deloitte. No, 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 it's nice. Yeah, and yeah, no, I've been, you know, the new, are great. The new um, GT looks beautiful. I got that. My wife's yeah. got that. Right, I love the look beautiful. of that. Bit a little bit more angular at the front, isn't it? And they then the back they got a little bit of a yes up on it. Yeah. Yeah. Any no, other cars you've enjoyed? I've enjoyed. I mean, uh, the fastest one and the most fun. I don't know if you've never heard it. It's a Corvette Callaway. Right, I love Corvette. It was so, a Corvette, yeah. and the guy's brother, the Callaway golf designer's yeah. brother, designed ah. cars. Right. So Corvette Callaway made fifty cars. Wow. And the Black Rider in uh, the, the, that film yeah. is actually one of those cars. Oh, right. And what they did is they take the shell, and then they put this most unbelievable engine. It is spotless, shining, and it's a rocket ship. Yeah. The trouble is, it's all right when it's dry, and it's left-hand drive. They didn't make it right-hand drive. Yeah. And if you had a tiny bit of rain and you accelerated, it was like all yeah. that. But yeah. well, how did it go? Yeah, I have an, I have an Aventador, and that is... Oh, <laughs> yeah, not easy to control. No, though. you can't. No. I love cars. Yeah. Cars. Huh? yeah. All right. Hobby. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> believe this one. Ah, oh dear. Um, <laughs> do younger women flirt with you because you're rich? 
Not that I notice. <laughs> Correct answer. Although your wife has left us, hasn't yes, she? she has, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she's gone to make the lunch. No. Yeah. Um, By the way, these were collated from our community. I'll just oh, say so. Well, okay. No, I mean, I, th I think people still, you know, when when you're reasonably well, no, people come up and talk to you that yeah. they probably wouldn't otherwise. I and you're okay with that? that? You don't feel uncomfortable I talk with that? To any, I talk to anybody. Yeah. In fact, I often just go around and t I, I love talking to people. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, if it's, yeah, you get to know a lot of things about people, you just go out and talk to them. Yeah. Okay. And then who's the best businessman, um, David Lloyd or Duncan Bannatyne? He stole my ideas. Yeah. What can I say? Touche. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, that's been the cheeky round. We'll, we'll see if we do that again. Thank you for uh, playing Thank you. with Thank that. Thank you. Um, was there any resistance to you in building your dream? Oh, Did yeah. Did people I mean, resist? Oh, well, people thought I was nuts. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll tell you one, one very good story, actually. It's true. All the best stories are true. Mm -hmm. I, I, had, I had one chunk of money to raise for the first club. And a friend of mine, John Barrett, who used to be the tennis commentator, said, I think I've got this contact in... Uh, NatWest County Bank, and I think they're very keen. So I said, okay. And I'd done all the plans, all the figures, everything myself. I'd done all the figures. Anyway, and I went to this meeting, and it was in the most beautiful meeting in the old-fashioned offices in those days. All these banks had mahogany tables and, you know, all the... Anyway, so I'm sitting there at this table, and... Just the paintings alone were, I thought, oh, I could pinch one of those, I'd be home and dry. So anyway, so I'm sitting there on this massive table, and a guy walks in. I got married, my first marriage, I got married in Scotland, and this guy came in with the tails and the white gloves with a beautiful silver tray with porcelain. I mean, I thought, oh, really made it today. So he poured the tea, everyone's going great. I thought, well, this is it, I'm here. So these four guys walked in, probably about the same age as me, and sat opposite me. So they sat down. He says to me, first question, what's it worth as a warehouse? I said, I'm not building a warehouse. He said, but what's it worth as a warehouse? I said, I'm not building a warehouse. So these questions are just the most incredibly stupid questions that I've ever been attacked with. Mm. And then the guy says to me, how are you going to get there? So I asked a question. I thought it would be a year. I said, do you play golf? And the guy said, yeah, I play golf. I said, great. I said, how do you get to your golf club? He said, I go buy a car. I said, what a miracle. <laughs> you can come to my club, buy a car, because i got a car park. Anyway, when I, I walked out. This is the true story. If they had invested £125,000, which is what they were, it was the last chunk left. Mm. If they had kept in all the way up, guess how much that would have been worth? Five million. Fifty-one. Fifty-one million. Wow. Counting out West didn't last very long. Yeah. And that's why. But that's what happens. I mean, yeah. ah. mm. So I interviewed a billionaire called Naveen Jain, and he's a lovely man. And he said, if people don't think my idea is crazy, it's not a good idea. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of people worry, don't they, about oh, yeah. people think I'm crazy. They resist me. But he's the opposite. He says, if they don't think I'm crazy, it's not a big enough idea. What do you think about that? No, I think he's right. I mean, I, all my best friends were saying, oh, you can't do this. What do you know about it? And you know, you're just a tennis player. And I said, oh, OK. Thanks. Did and that motivate did, you in any way? Oh, it made me more determined. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I had some, I mean, it took me two years to raise the money and I thought yeah. it'd be easy. 
because everybody knew me then. I was still playing, which yeah. is important. I think I think sports people should start businesses when they're still playing. Yes. Yeah. Not when it get, they get forgotten. So I started when I was still playing. Yeah. And I've had some, lots of conversations about this with Frank Bruno, uh, with a UFC fighter who just retired. And often they're not taught no. about business um, while they're in sports. But, you know, when you're in sports, knee injury and in tennis, gone. Career in tennis, what, 35 if you're lucky, mm. gone. What are you going to do for the rest of the 60 years? And I think it's a really important message to get out there that if you are going into sport or some kind of profession where it can end quickly to learn about business. Absolutely. And I think what, what has happened, and it's getting worse in my opinion, you, everybody has an agent. And they're good if they're good, but if they're bad, they, they are a disaster because they yeah. spend your money. Right. They, they lose your money. So Is you've that, got to be yeah. very, you've got to be, you've got to safeguard your money. And therefore you've got to learn as much as you can about whatever you want to go into. Yeah. And you've got to, in my opinion, start in your the last couple of years of your career because people know you. And that's important because mm. you can, you can get the publicity. You, you know, when I opened my first club, I was, I was still playing. John, my brother, was married to Chris Everett. You know, Jimmy Connors was John's best friend and one of my best friends. Des Lynham was a member of the club. Elton John sponsored my kids. So, mm. you know, I, I don't have to do anything. Yeah. And they all love it. It's their club. So, I mean, Elton said something. Cliff, so Cliff Richard came. And so it, it's important, Got very important. Leverage that and get Absolutely. some momentum yeah. off And they all they like it, you know. Uh, all the clubs were opened by sporting people. Ron Atkinson, he play, played in the one we opened in Birmingham, and Cliff always played with the openings. And mm. you know, it's what you've got to do. Yeah. But you've got to learn the business, and you you've got to find someone you really trust. Mm. It's funny because I always thought Frank Bruno, for example, when he did Panto, did it because the nation loved him. He did it because he was advised by someone close to him to do something else outside of boxing in case you get knocked out and you can't get in mm. the ring again. And I don't think many people knew that. Um, but, yeah, I think that that's... No, you should. I mean, I, 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 you know, I really, when I do some talks, I, I do say, you know, that's, you, you've got to do it. Yeah. It's important. Mm. Absolutely. Something else you mentioned, which I'm a big believer in, I just want to check this with you, David. Um, you said about you've got to learn to manage your own money and agents can spend your money. I, I wrote a book called Money, which has done well in the UK, and I'm a massive believer that you should learn to become your own independent financial advisor and learn to manage your own money and invest your own money because no one's going to manage and invest your own money as well as you. And, of course, an agent has got an ulterior motive for... And, and, and even I'm not going to knock anyone, but even some IFAs might have an ulterior motive, a better commission, etc. Mm. I'm a massive believer in learning to manage your own money. And at school, I was taught geography which is geography in French, mm. which is, how do I ever use that now? But I wasn't taught how to manage my own money. No. I, wasn't, I mean, okay, there was economics, but no one was taught that stuff. Do, do, have you always managed your own money or have you used advisors and people to invest it for you? No, I've always, I mean, I, I, you know, I had a bit of a falling out with my, my brother and, and my dad. When, when we were doing well as a doubles team, everyone wanted, you know, we, we did very well and everyone knew us. You know, it's unusual for two brothers to to play for their country mm. and to do well. And he was going to go with this new management company. And I said, I'm not going. I'm, I went to their offices, you know. Always worried when you walk in, you, you know, you've got marble tiles and this, that and the other. And I think, oh, okay, okay. That's where your money's Where's he coming from? You yeah. know? And I said, no. 
And he got lucky because I kept on. I said, John, are you sure? So John, through my dad, got his money out the day before it collapsed. He would have lost everything. Really? Wow. And so, you know, I, I've never used anybody. Mm. I ask people. Yeah, and I, and I And I... And I hunt around for the best knowledge I can get and I, I do all my homework but in the end of the day I make my, my decisions mm. and I you know I'm always looking out there for things and, and I agree with you 100% I think people should learn they have to learn the value of money and they have yeah. to, to, to learn all the things that relate around it because you get so many comments out there mm. yeah and also if you manage your own money the great thing about that is the buck stops with you and you're fully accountable yeah. And, you know, to sit and blame and be bitter about someone else is quite toxic, isn't it? But you can't if you're investing your own money. It's all on you. Yeah. And there's something quite powerful about that. Mm, no, I agree. Mm. Okay, so you've been very successful in business. So where do you think um, others have failed? Why have you been successful and why have others failed? Maybe in your business niche or you've just seen around people failed. What didn't they know? What didn't they do? I think... When I, when I, again, when I do some business talks, when it's your business at the beginning, ev everybody overestimates their income and everybody underestimates their costs. Yeah. So I tell everybody that to be prudent, I would lower your income by 10 to 15% and I would up your costs by 10 to 15%. Mm. It's your dream. I'm not trying to stop your dream, but if it then stacks up, then do it. Yeah. And don't let anyone put you off. Yeah. But you, nine times out of 10, you think it's better than it is because yeah. it's yours. Yeah. So that's one way of at least um, sensitizing the, 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 the investment. Mm -hmm. And the other is, is, is really... All the businesses I look at, they all have too many costs. Mm. They don't do the zero budgeting and they don't... A leisure business is, is extremely sensitive to flow patterns of members because, you know, you come in all different times, but you've got to track that because if I... I can't afford to have three people on reception when there's only one person coming in every hour. Yeah. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Mm. So your staff have to be multi multi-trained so that the barman can come on the reception, the reception can go on the bar. So a David Lloyd, I don't know what's happening now, but in my day, they could. So whenever there was a pinch point, the person in charge recognised that pinch point and the person went to the pinch point mm. so that you didn't overstaff. Yeah. Because it's the easiest thing in the world to is overstaff. Mm. And, and, and that's it. But in the end of the day, you can be unlucky. You can be in the wrong time and the interest rate can go through the ceiling. And yeah. But I think you've got to be very cautious in your first business plan. Right. Will your children inherit your wealth? If so, why? And if not, why? We were talking about this yesterday. I, no, I, what, I, what, I, what my first wife and I decided uh, for the first one is that we should give it to them quicker rather than wait till they're 99 when they can't spend it or wait, you know, like Prince Charles is waiting till the Queen dies. I mean, you know, he might die before us. So, <laughs> so, so we set it up and, and if you've brought up sensible kids, they will be sensible. Mm. And we also worked out how much is the right amount uh, that will not make them go out and buy seven Ferraris 
but will also make sure that they know if they're smart and clever and prudent that there's a lot of worry off their shoulders. Mm. And so that's what we did. Okay. We, 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 and, and like my first three kids touch wood, we got it right. Mm. They're, they're all grown up. Scott, my son now runs the LTA. Yeah. He's the chief executive, wow. chief executive of the LTA, ran David Lloyd leisure as well. Uh, my youngest daughter is a, a, a microbiologist doctor. Mm-hmm. And my eldest daughter has four kids, but she was the editor of a very famous children's book company. Right. And you know what? They're solid as rocks. And yeah. So you've done and a good I'm, job. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. I mean, you've got, if you've got wealth, the most important thing is to give them love, which is free, and education, which you've got to get, and to make sure they live in a good environment mm. and, and learn the basic. You know, they've got to be normal people. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, if your bank account went completely to zero, what would your first few actions be to if get you, back on your feet? If uh, if you, all your money went, what would you do to start again? Property, probably. Mm. Because I, I, like, I know it. And if you choose, I mean, it's a bit, you know, with all this Brexit and stuff, you know, it isn't easy at the moment, but if you buy property well and you develop it, even if you put it, you know, my first investments when I was young, everything went into property. At one stage, yeah. we had about nine houses mm. that were rented out and we picked good places. We picked Aspen, we picked Barbados. If you pick the place right, yeah, it's going to do that. But to, if you, unless you are, you know, really unlucky, you will get an upward curve with property. Yeah. And you can live in it, and, and you can touch it. Mm. You know, I yeah. wouldn't, I would not, I do not invest in the stock market anymore. No. I don't know enough about it. And the swings when I was, you know, 10, 10 or 12 points was a big swing. Now, it could, it could be 100 points in a minute. Yeah, very I volatile. I can't control that. No. Okay, so we'll have a wander around in a second. One thing before we do is we've started to ask this question purely out of fashion, fascination, but sometimes it comes to something. So if there's one person you would say, we absolutely must interview on this podcast, who would it be? Like maybe your personal favourite person that you'd like to listen to. Uh, I mean, I've been very lucky. And unfortunately, most of them are dead. You know, I had a very good relationship with Maggie Thatcher. She, she, was, a, she was our MP at Finchley. So mm. she opened all the clubs there. And Mohammed Ali, I was lucky to meet. So... Right. Those are, I would love to have interviewed Winston Churchill, but, you know, yeah. obviously, the living person, yeah. a real frank interview, I, I think I might go with Donald Trump. All right. I've played golf with Donald. Should I we get him. our people yeah. to speak to their people? <laughs> no, I know Donald. I play golf with him. My, bro- yeah. my, my brother knows him well. And yeah. uh, the thing I admire about him, and I'm not saying that I, I think his policies are right or whatever, but all I can tell you He's exactly the same off the screen as he is on. Yeah. And as that I admire. Yeah. I think that's important to yeah. be the same person. Mm. And, I, and I'm, I, 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 that, I admire that. Yeah, this is a very, uh, many years ago, I got involved in helping people who I felt were being abused by their agents and things. Right. And I did two things. One was a guy called Willard Wigan, who... Uh, who, when he was young, 
he had dyslexia, but of course in those days, no one knew that what, what it was. So the, the parents put him in the bottom of the garden, little, and this is true, in a little uh, coal shack. Blime. And he's only about eight or nine or whatever. And when he's in there, he sees all these ants running around. And he, he says, right, I'm going to make these little ants a home. And he started making out of balsa wood little homes for ants. And this is what he now does. I took him, I've taken him all over the world. He's got an MBE. Just you've got to look on the end there. All right, that's a, that's a needle. Okay. So, this, so this is a piece of art? Yeah, look, look through there. He's done that on the end, end of a needle. Wow. That's all done by hand. How did he do that? <laughs> no one knows. <laughs> I owned him, you see, because his agent was screwing him. He was selling the pieces for 10 grand. They were giving him 100 quid. Blimey. So I bought the whole collection. So this is all the Microsoft, sorry, the microscope. Oh, yeah, and that, that's about it. Nowadays, nowadays, they've got fantastic units. I mean, right. he's done, he's, 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 he's been on Opera Winfrey. He's been on uh, Jay Leno. He's been on, uh, he's done all these things. He, he talked to the TAD conference. He got an MBE. I took him to Buckingham Palace. In a Lamborghini, but I had a Lamborghini then. Nice. So he loved it. He went, he went to Buckingham Palace in a Lamborghini. These next two questions are pretty rubbish, but the answers are normally good. So I just <laughs> thought I'd warn you. Um, what's the best and the worst advice you've ever received? The, the worst is don't do the centres, <laughs> which I think we proved was a bad one. And the best was, was probably... From my dad, he said, if you believe in it, go for it. And mm. don't let anyone put you off. Great. Right. You know, I love my dad and he was right. Yeah. yeah. And is there anything in one thing, if you could pick, in the world that you think is wrong that you'd like to change? Um, lots of things, but one. Uh, Typical question, really. Mm. Um, I, I, I am. I'm not sure what you can do about it, mind you, but I am a bit concerned about the climate. Mm. Um, but I, I'm not sure. A bit here and a bit there will do it. Mm. Personally, there's some very powerful people behind the change, though, isn't there? At the moment, yeah, I think. And I think you know these companies. They will be inventing everything now. Plastic will go. I mean, yeah. there will be things that, that can be exactly the same as plastic. It won't be plastic. Mm. I mean, that's what happens. Yeah. Uh, like this, this chap, Willard, he actually gets phone calls from heart surgeons. Because he's so good. They at the say, the heart surgeon say, well, how? Because we, even our robots, which they're all done by robot arms now, we can't do it that small. Wow. Yeah, he's got a second yeah, career I if mean, he needs it. You know, it's unbelievable. And I've seen him. The, 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 most of that is done with um, uh, spider's web, which because spider's web is the strongest material in the world. Right. Pound for pound. Yeah. And he, he, he just catches it. And the other thing he does when he needs, I mean, he paints he paints it with an eyelash. I mean, that, that is painted. So that he's painted Paints it with, it with an eyelash. And I, I see him sometimes when I go in there and he's sitting there and at a certain time, you sometimes see a little flicker of dust or whatever it's called coming down and he'll grab it with his full force and do it like that yeah. and then he'll use it. Right. Amazing man. Yeah. But he was absolutely screwed when he was young with, you know, but now he's, now he's doing well. He's got his own house now. Yeah. And uh, 
he's done a he's done a watch where the pieces are in the watch. Oh, the um, the, the little tiny yeah. thing. So you'll have six things you can choose. So when it comes round, there's a magnifying glass. You can actually right. see them in the watch. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. done it with a company called Grubel. Yeah, is, Grubel Forcing. Yeah, yeah, I know the watch. Yeah, and, uh, he's oh, done. They, he's, done about he's bespoke eleven. Apparently, what they do is they do ten, but they always do eleven. Keep one. Right. So yeah. when they do a bespoke watch or a, um, whatever, mm. they do eleven. Their watches are hundreds of thousands. And he's done of it. He's done, no, he worked for them. Yeah, he's done it. Oh right. And then, then, and then, some will come up like, like for example, I don't know, Elon Musk, who's got this big ego. Inside it will be the cars, right? Because they can design. He, he will then do whatever they want. Yeah. So the watch is all being designed, and then he will fit the pieces on. Yeah. So there's there's a few people, ten people going around with. They're all sold. Yeah. I think they sold for one point two million each dollars. Mm. Yeah, genius. Yeah. And the final question. Uh, this podcast has the word disruptive in it. We like to interview disruptors. So what does the <laughs> word disruptive mean to you? This, I'm, I'm, I mean, if my son came in here, Scott, he is, and my wife, they're fanatics. It's got to be everything in it. I have to have it everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not disrupted as a person, but I mean, I have to have, I have to have the music blaring. I have to have things all over the bloody floor. Because I, I know, I actually know where it is. Yeah. But I need to, and I need, I can't, I need to go from one to another. So in other words, although I've got a tick list I've got to finish in the day, that tick list I will go from one to two, up to four, back again, and finish them in the day. Yeah. But I, I don't have... My brain doesn't allow me to say, right, I'm going to do a letter and I'm not going to leave until I do it. Yeah. I have to do something else. Mm. And so, I, 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 this is me. Yeah. It was tidy when you came in because my, <laughs> yeah, my it was. wife it was very tidy. tidy. <laughs> Great. Well, look, David, thank okay. you very much. Thank you. Really appreciate thank it. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much.